Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, July 9th, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, they're called child prodigies, and in uh, psychology research literature, the term is defined as a person under the age of 10 who produces meaningful output in some domain to the level of an adult expert performer. So I did a little research to see who some of child prodigies have been over the years. Uh, Some of the ones you may recognize, there may be some new ones. Uh, I was trying to find some that I'd never heard of. Uh, We'll start, though, with the granddaddy of them all. You can't really say granddaddy when you're talking child prodigies. The grandbaby of them all, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, considered by many to be the greatest musical child prodigy of all time. Uh, He started composing complete scores of music when he was just five years old. Like, what were you doing when you were five years old? I wasn't doing what Mozart was doing, that's for sure. Uh, H.P. Lovecraft was reciting poems at age two, writing his own poems at age six. He'd later to go on to become famous for his horror fiction classics. Any H.P. Lovecraft fans? A few. Okay, there you go. Uh, Sergei Karjakin was the youngest chess grandmaster, which is the highest honor you can get or the highest level that a player can attain. It's a lifetime title. Once you're a grandmaster, you'll always be. He achieved this at 12 years, seven months old back in 2002. So the picture on the left is him in 2002, and the more recent one is uh, just taken a year or so ago. Taylor Wilson is an American nuclear physicist who built a bomb at age 10. Like, there's a high-achieving kid in your family, right? Uh, And at age 14, in 2004, built a nuclear fission reactor. Yeah, a little bit ahead of his time, right? Uh, David Farragut entered the Navy at age 9, and in the War of 1812 was given his first command of a ship at 12 years old. Amazing, right? Went on to become the Navy's first full admiral. Pablo Picasso painted this picture, Picador, at the age of eight years old, and I heard he had a pretty decent career after that as well, right? Yeah, very popular. Gregory Hines was tap dancing as a toddler, started performing professionally at age five. Amazing, right? Welcome to the fourth and final week of our sermon series, And a Little Child Shall Lead Them. And each week we're taking a different Bible story that has at its center children or young people. And seeing what we can learn about life, about faith, about discipleship along the way. Jesus welcomed children in his ministry. In fact, uh, his bodyguards, the disciples, sometimes tried to keep them away. And he said, no, this is, the children are part of the kingdom of God. And he was always uh, making time in his schedule to include them. And we here at Palmdale United Methodist Church have been uh, building the next generation for years. We think that children and young people aren't just the future of the church, they're our present. And we put a lot of time and energy in helping nurture them so that they can have their own life uh, uh, with God and relationship with the Lord. Today we finish the series by examining a, uh, the story of young Samuel, a child prodigy himself, uh, you might say in the area of theology and pastoral leadership. But in order to get to that story, we got to dig back into the Old Testament. So I invite you to take out your Bibles or grab the Pew Bible in front of you or open your smartphone and pull up your Bible app as we follow along. We're going to be reading uh, passages uh, that Bill didn't read with, for us, and we're going to start 
at the very beginning, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. About maybe one-fifth of the way through your Bible is where you'll find it. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohua, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, first of all, uh, aside from the super hard names to pronounce here, we meet a man named Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Now, right away, this should raise a red flag in our minds. If there's anything that I've come to learn as I've been reading through Scripture, it's this. Very rarely does two or more wives lead to anything but trouble when it comes to the Bible stories, right? So there's that going for this story. Uh, Second, we discover that one of the wives has born children, the other has not. This becomes our second red, red flag. You see, in biblical times, one of the worst situations a woman could endure was childlessness. A woman's value in the ancient Near East was defined by the males in her life, her husband and her children, specifically boy children. The greater the children, the greater the recognition and honor. Conversely, women that didn't have children were seen by many as less than acceptable. And it didn't matter if it was the husband's fault that they couldn't have kids. The woman was the one who uh, was the, the... Uh, the onus was squarely placed upon. And so literally, a woman without children was a second-class citizen. Such is the case with wife number two, Hannah. Verse 3. Now, this man used to go up year by year uh, from this town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. In the ancient, uh, at this time in the the history of ancient Israel, uh, Jerusalem had not yet been established as the temple. So there were lots of different places for worship all around the country, different uh, shrines that were set up in regions. Shiloh was almost smack dab in the middle of Israel. Here's a close-up of the map. And Shiloh is just south of Samaria. It's north of Bethlehem and Jerusalem. The Israelites would travel at certain times of the year to these shrines where they could uh, pay their vows and make their sacrifices to the Lord. Thus, Elkanah and his two wives came to Shiloh. Now, there's this touching scene early on in the chapter where we glimpse a little bit of Hannah's pain and disgrace for being childless. When Elkanah uh, was serving the meal, uh, when they got to Shiloh to celebrate whatever the, 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 the ceremony was when they got there, he was giving everyone a, the, a, an equal po- portion except for Hannah. He gave her a double share because he knew that she had to deal with a lot of Uh, input and and negative input from from his other wife. Verse 5. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went by year after year after year. In fact, it got so bad that at times uh, Hannah was driven to tears and sometimes she even refused to eat. Well, this one year, it got so bad that Hannah left the family feast and went back to the sanctuary just to spend time alone with God. So she was praying, she was weeping, she was pouring out her heart to God. She even made a promise, a vow to God that night in the temple. She said, God, if you will just grant me a child, a male, I will give him back to you for service. 
So there she is. She's in the sanctuary at Shiloh. She's weeping. She's praying silently for the Lord. It just so happened that the priest at that time, Eli, happened to be in the back of the temple. He saw her come in. He was watching her. And in his expert opinion, she appeared to be drunk, which wasn't uncommon at festival times. There was a lot of drinking that went around. So with all the the tact and the sensitivity of a man of the cloth, Eli approached Hannah and gently said, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. We're taught this at seminary to be very understanding to people when, you know, they're going through difficult spiritual crises, right? Uh, So when Hannah then tells him, "Um, actually, I haven't been drinking. I've been praying. Eli was very, very embarrassed. In fact, he, uh, in order to save face, he quickly says to her, uh, uh, go in peace and the God of Israel grant the petition you have made him. He doesn't even know what she was praying for. He's like, yeah, whatever it is, uh, give my 100% A number one blessing upon you, right? But Hannah left with her spirits lifted. Verse 20, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. Now, we don't know how old Hannah was at this time, and my mom taught me never to ask a woman her age, so I didn't even want to look it up. Uh, But can you imagine how this must have been for her, to have been barren and childless for so long, to have faced ridicule, taunting, derision by the other wife year after year after year, to know wherever she went, whatever she did, she was labeled by just about everyone she saw as being a barren, childless woman, and now everything has changed. She's become a mother for the first time. What amazing joy she would have felt, what peace and contentment, at least until he got old enough to start running around the house, and then she was worn out like every other mother, right? But do you know what's even more amazing than the fact that Hannah finally got pregnant and gave birth to a son was that she actually upheld the vow she had made to God that night in the temple in Shiloh. The Bible said when, she, when Samuel was weaned, probably between two and a half and three and a half years old, Hannah took him back to Shiloh and gave him to the Lord. No longer would, he, would she be able to see him grow day after day at home and help teach him and raise him. She had given him back to God. She'd see him every year when they came back to the festival, but what a, can you imagine how she would have felt to come and, and give over her son back to Eli? But she did so with joy and with thanksgiving. Uh, she knew that he was a gift from God. And she entrusted him to that great, insightful, ever-perceptive priest, Eli. That's okay. It wasn't Eli she was giving him to. She was giving him to God. Verse 21. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, while the boy remained to minister to the Lord in the presence of the priest, Eli. There's a beautiful passage earlier in chapter 2 that I commend to your own reading, where Hannah sings this song of joy to the Lord. And scholars believe that that song inspired Mary when she sang her Magnificat of being uh, found that she is with child with Jesus, uh, the tradition of of Hannah's song uh, played into that as well. Every year, mom would come back up for the pilgrimage. She and Samuel would get to spend quality time together. And when the festival is over, she, dad, and wife number two would return while Samuel would stay in the temple to learn about being a priest with Eli. And then at the very, close to the end of chapter 2, it says, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Isn't that what we want to say for our children, for our grandchildren, for our nieces and nephews, that they grew in both stature and favor with God and with others? Amen. Well, life was good in Samuel's family, not so much in Eli's family. 
Eli had two sons who were also uh, priests, Hophni and Phinehas. And, and the dad had hoped that they would follow in his tradition. And while they did become priests, they were not good priests. They were wicked and evil priests that uh, were leading uh, astray. Uh, the Bible says that amongst the things that they, when people would bring their offerings to the, to the church for sacrifice, they would take the best portions for themselves before they made the offerings to God. They were exceedingly greedy. And in more than one occasion, they were found in the red light district of Shiloh, if you know what I mean. There's a point in, chap- in, in chapter 2 when God sends a messenger to Eli to warn him about how far his sons had strayed. But Eli wasn't able to hear negative criticism about his boys, even though they should have been, according to Scripture, cut off from the community. They should have been separated because of their sin. Eli did nothing to challenge them or to chastise them. And so Hophni and Phinehas kept doing what they were doing, going farther and farther away from the Lord. And by the time we get to our reading today, the bill read from chapter 3, We have quite a contrast between Eli's two corrupt sons that are going farther and farther away from the Lord and his new adopted son, Samuel, the young child prodigy who's growing in in favor with God. That's when God makes his move. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. That's an amazing second sentence. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Evidently, God was not too fond of speaking to people those days, not even to the priest, not even to Eli. Maybe part of the the factor of that was the unrepentant sin in his family. We don't know. But can you imagine not being able to hear from God? And so Eli would go to bed and sleep in his quarters, and Samuel uh, would, would sleep in the actual temple itself in Shiloh. And what's interesting, what's amazing, that inside Shiloh at that time was the Ark of the Covenant. For all you Raiders of the Lost Ark fans, remember what Indiana Jones was searching for? The Ark of the Covenant. That was this golden box with the, the, the cherubim, uh, the angels' wings on the top. Inside it, it held uh, the Ten Commandments, Moses' staff, and some manna, a jar containing some of the manna uh, from when the Israelites were fed in the wilderness. But even more importantly was, the Hebrew people believed that was God's chair. Wherever the ark went, that's where God would sit on earth. It was so holy and powerful, the Israelite army would take it into battle with them so that God's presence would be them as they fought off their enemies. Can you imagine how weird that must have been for Samuel on the first night he had to spend the night in the temple with the ark of the covenant? I mean, I would have been totally freaked out, I think, the very first night. But over time... He came to know that that was part of God's presence. Verse 2. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call. Lie down again. So Samuel went and lay down. Samuel hears his name being called at night. He assumes it's his mentor calling him. And Eli, who's probably not appreciating being woken up from the middle of his sleep, sends Samuel back with the words that every parent has said countless times over their lifetime, go back to sleep. The same scenario happens not one other time, but two more times. Both times, Samuel hears his name being called. He heads to Eli's room. Eli tells him, I did not call you. Go back to sleep. But it's only after the third time that Eli finally figure out, figures out what's happening. Then Eli, verse 8, second half of verse 8, perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, 
for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And we discover that Samuel is nothing if not obedient and faithful. And that's just what he does. Now, before we get to what happens next, we have to go back to one verse that I overlooked. 1 Samuel 3, verse 7. That's when the narrator tells us this. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. When I read that this past week, I was kind of shocked and surprised that that verse is in here. Like, wait a minute. Here's this young man that's being trained to be a priest in the temple of the Lord at Shiloh. He doesn't even know the Lord yet. Now, of course, Samuel knew about God, right? I know his mother, Hannah, would have told him about the Lord. And here's why I'm taking you to live with the pastor. And you're not going to be home with us anymore because God has this, this call upon your life. And then as he grew up with, with uh, Eli, Eli would have told him all about the Lord and the stories uh, of the fathers and the mothers that have come before. But there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Tony Cartledge, in his Smith and Helwey's commentary on 1 Samuel, remarks that the Hebrew word to know that's used here suggests intimate knowledge that grows from a personal relationship. Intimate knowledge that grows from a personal relationship. I think it's a lesson for all of us, isn't it? That knowing about God isn't the same thing as knowing God in an intimate and personal relationship with the Almighty. We can come to church every week. We can take Bible study after Bible study. We can join small groups. We can participate in vacation Bible school. There are so many wonderful activities we can do that will help us know more about God. But our lives won't change until we have a personal relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, I believe that God speaks to us in, in, in a variety of ways. And I believe that God chooses to speak in ways that we will hear. How you hear God may be very different from how the person next to you hears God. For Samuel, the voice of God sounded like the voice of his mentor, the voice of Eli, his friend in faith. It was familiar and comforting. If it was uh, Charlton Heston's voice, it might have freaked him out. He wouldn't have recognized it. It might have been scary, but it sounded like Eli, so it sounded comfortable, and he was able to, to enter into that relationship. I've only heard God's voice in my life audibly once. It was when I felt called into the ministry. And, and, and I can't say what the voice sounded like. It just, to me, it was like a question that I heard in my head that I'd never thought before. And that was the question, what about the ministry? Uh, but I think that there's other ways that God speaks into our lives. I, I know in my life, God speaks through thoughts and ideas that pop into my head. And it, sometimes it takes a while to figure out, is that my idea or God's idea? And I need some confirmations and things. But God does use that from time to time. God also speaks through nature. Uh, I grew up in a house with a National Park Service ranger as my father. And so we were constantly going outside and exploring different parks. And so I connect to God through sunsets and sunrises and mountains and rivers and streams and oceans in in many different ways. I've heard God speak through friends and other people, through conversations, phone calls, letters, correspondence. I hear God speak through music all the time, uh, from the old hymns and traditional songs of the church to more contemporary praise music to country music, even rock and roll. God uses all kinds of music to speak to me. They don't even have to be Christian songs per se. I can find a, an, a line or some kind of uh, a, a phrase that the artist may put in there that, that connects to something that goes beyond myself. God speaks through social ills and social problems of this world. Racism, sexism, xenophobia, homelessness. My heart breaks 
when I see what's happening throughout the news of, of the day-to-day activities, and God speaks to my heart about, it doesn't have to be this way. This is not the way I created it. We can make a difference. I've experienced God speaking through my own struggles and suffering. In fact, that's very biblical. Sometimes we draw closer to God and deepen our relationship with Him when we go through really difficult times in our lives or in the lives of those close to us. But perhaps the most common way that I hear God speak into my life is by reading the Bible. They're called the words of life for a reason. Over and over again, I've seen how God has used words that were written thousands and thousands of years ago to speak a fresh word and insight to me today. I've mentioned more than once about scripture journaling. That changed my life about 15 years ago when I started reading the Bible devotionally rather than for information. Uh, it's, very, it's a very simple way. If you've never uh, had a chance to do this, we have scripture journal starter packets. You can pick them up at the table in the back or go to the website, click under I'm new, and there's a, a, a tab for scripture journaling. But it's a way of hearing God speak through the words that we've had for so many years. So what happened to Samuel when he went back and lay down and waited for the fourth time for God to call him? Now the Lord came, verse 10, and stood there and calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, as Eli taught him, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Samuel was ready. Maybe he was ready to hear God's voice, but he may not have been ready for what God was going to tell him. Because God told him that, He was going to hold Eli and his sons responsible for the sins they have committed. And even though they are priests, no amount of sacrifice or offering can atone for what they've done. As you can imagine, it wasn't the happy, happy, joy, joy message that he might have been hoping to get in his first time connecting with God. And it actually kept him up all night. He didn't go back to sleep. So troubled he was by it. In the morning, Eli was looking for Samuel to find out, what was it that God told you? And he knew as soon as he saw his face that the word from the Lord was not a good one. Verse 17, Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide from me all that he has told you. I mean, he knew that it was a bad word and he's saying like, that's going to happen to you if you don't tell me what it was that God told you. Verse 18, so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Then Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I'm sure even before he asked the question, Eli had a sinking feeling that he knew what the message was that God told Samuel. God would not allow his sons to keep up their blasphemous and ungodly ways, and we all have to face the consequences of our actions. There is nothing the Bible says that cannot be forgiven, but we still have to face the consequences for our actions. Eli was mature enough in his spirituality to know that God will be God. Let him do what he seems fit. And at that moment, the roles were forever reversed. The teacher had become the student, and God had chosen to speak through a child, a young boy who didn't even know the Lord personally before that very night. And yet this young boy conveyed this extremely heavy message to Eli and to his sons. It was a bittersweet moment, I'm sure, for Eli's knowing that his life was nearing an end, filled with sorrow of the direction that his sons had chosen to go in their life, and yet quite, I'm sure, honored and proud that God had chosen to reveal himself to his young protege, to Samuel. And Eli knew that the Hebrew people would have a reliable and trustworthy messenger of, this, of the Lord and this young man who had been given to him by a very faithful mother. Verse 19 
As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. Every time we read a biblical story, we have to ask ourselves, so what does it say to us? What's the takeaway? And there's so many things that we could take away from this message. For starters, we all need to be actively pursuing a relationship with God ourselves. We can't get by on our spouses, on our parents, uh, on the tradition of having been to church for so many years. We call it discipleship here at Palmdale United Methodist Church. And as followers of Jesus, we know there's more than just coming to worship on Sunday morning. That's a great start. It starts with being connected to worship. But we also believe that we are invited into spiritual relationships, uh, spiritual growth, relationships with other believers, and a life of servanthood where we give ourselves away uh, for others and for a hurting world. Sometimes, though, we get so caught up in doing things at church, being involved in helping in all these, and it happens to the best of us that we forget to, know, to nurture our relationship with God. That can change. A great prayer every morning when you wake up is just ask God, speak to me today. Speak to me in whatever ways and whatever words you need, speak to me today. And it's only by becoming familiar with God's words through the Bible that you'll be able to know, oh, that was a word from God and not just something that came out uh, of left field. Like, we'll be able to see through nature or through music or through conversations with friends or when we're going through struggles with loved ones in the hospital, whatever it may be. If we're grounded in Scripture, we'll be able to hear the words of God as He speaks through many other ways. And as the title of this series suggests, One big takeaway is no one is too young to be used by God. One of my favorite stories of my kids, my daughter Emily is here for the summer. Uh, She's 19, and uh, my son Ezra is is going to, is 20, 20, 22. And I remember one day, you know, I was the one, Jody was working in downtown Honolulu. I was the one that would pick them up after school. And I think I'd picked up Ezra from elementary school and Emily from preschool. And we're coming back up the, the long hill to our house where we lived. A beautiful view overlooking Pearl Harbor. And it was just one of those beautiful days. And I know I, I decided, you know, I need to use this as a teaching moment to help my children be thinking of God and not just thinking about themselves all the time. And so I, I said, Emily and Ezra, boy, look at this beautiful day. The sky is so blue. The clouds are amazing. The grass in the yards that we're passing are so green. There's flowers everywhere, this cool breeze. Didn't God do a great job making today? And Ezra, the older of the two, said something like, uh, yeah, yeah, he did, God. And then Emily, who's always had that, that spiritual connection, said, and I bet God was happy to hear you say that today, Daddy. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so maybe I don't need to teach my kids because they're already connected to God. Friends, no one is too young, too unexperienced, too small, too unimportant to be used by God. We need to help our young children, our youth, our young adults nurture their relationship with God because children and young people play a huge role in the kingdom of God. And God can use them and frequently does to speak to us. So may we be open to learn from our children. Thanks be to God for the young people they have placed in our life. And may we follow in their footsteps as they lead us forward.